When Londoner Will Hyde took a road trip to explore the origins of country music in America, he was delighted by how often he felt right at home. And there were people on the porch just jamming, and we went round the back, and there were people flatfoot dancing. I thought, oh, I'll just pop in for half an hour, and I think we ended up staying all afternoon. Coming up, we'll wander the back roads of Appalachia to find an old-time music get-together. A drive in the Loire Valley in France will astound you with the sheer number of magnificent estates you'll come across. And it's not a recent development. Obviously, when the king uh, resided there, all of the court had to follow, and they had little chateaus here and there. So it's known as the Thousand Chateau Valley. And after six years in Germany, Sarah Zasky came back with some bold ideas on how they raise confident children. Kids learn best from each other, and they learn best by playing. That's where we're going in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Raising children in Germany promises a few surprises for American parents. We'll find out why on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Anne Francis Loire Valley is famous for its many elegant estates that look like fairy tale castles and, being France, great food, wine, and outdoor fun. A pair of French guides take listener calls in a bit with touring tips for Chateau Country. We're at 877-333-RIC. Englishman Will Hyde had heard that many of the people who settled in the Appalachian Mountains came over from Britain and Ireland. Traces of their heritage are found in the songs and ballads that have kept them going through hard times and good. So, Will set out to explore an authentic corner of Americana on a country music pilgrimage. He went to tourist hotspots like Nashville and Pigeon Forge and wandered over the Smokies to the music's origins in small Virginia towns like Bristol and Galax. He discovered that old-time mountain music still lights a spark for the people who live there today. Will, welcome. Hi there, thank you very much. Why did you go to Appalachia in the United States? I, I love coming to the States, I have to say that first of all, and I've done what you might say are all the big checklist tourist places, but I'm very lucky in that I've been able to get off the beaten track somewhat. And so now I'm going to a lot of the places that you might go to on a, well, not even a second visit, perhaps as a, as a British tourist, but a third visit. And I think this little corner of America um, is not one that features heavily on our radar. And so when I was asked to go down there and just do a bit of a road trip, I, I jumped at the chance. It was fantastic. And was it a success? Did you find that magical sort of slice of culture that a lot of people would just go, wow, I didn't know that was still around? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think from a British point of view, it's always interesting because, I mean, we get a lot of American TV here. So whenever you go to the States, it's almost like we're actors taking part in a movie or a TV series and everything is you know, it sounds like a cliche, but everything is bigger in America. And it, there's a definite wow factor when you come from our side of the pond. And also, I've got to say, there's the people are fantastic. But with an English accent, you can go have a, such a different experience. Everyone is, oh, wow, where are you from? And it's so easy to make conversation and meet people and chat, which I think I'm not sure ever happens quite the same way the other way around. But just meeting people, I guess, is, is one of the major things. Well, now, when I travel in England, you can go hiking or into a little village and you step into the pub. And if you sit at the bar, people just assume you want to talk and you've got friends right off the bat. Is there an equivalent when you were in the Appalachian region? I think everyone everyone was just so friendly. We were just chatting the whole time. I was there with a, a photographer from the magazine. Uh -huh. We started off in, in Pigeon Forge because we were going to Dollywood and to meet uh, Dolly herself. In the diner that morning, when people hear the accents, they're chatting, and what are you here for? And wow, you're here to meet Dolly. 
and everything just flowed from there. Extremely friendly. Okay, now you met Dolly Parton. She seems like the queen of country music, and I mean really like a queen of that region. What was it like to meet Dolly? Oh, fantastic. I mean, they love her around there, and it's almost, you know, like having an audience. And as Mm. the time got closer and closer, we were getting more and more excited. I have to say, I can't, I mean, luckily I was taping the interview. I can't really remember too much of what I said because I was so excited. I was thinking it'd probably be a little inappropriate if I asked her to do a duet uh, into my microphone on Islands in the Stream. So luckily didn't embarrass myself <laughs> by doing that. But then just, no, she's fantastic. She's quite quite extraordinary. And just everybody around there loves her. When we said we were going to meet Dolly, everyone's eyes just lit up. It was fantastic. Why do people love her so much there? Well, I think immediately in Pigeon Forge... Now, Pigeon Forge is is her home, right? Or her hometown. Pigeon Forge is her home, yeah, which is where Dollywood is. I mean, someone might email you and tell you I'm wrong, but I think a lot of the reason that Pigeon Forge has has grown up is because of Dolly and Dollywood. Mm -hmm. And I think she just... She provides, directly or indirectly, a lot of employment around there. Yeah, and, and also people are very proud of her success. Well, and she's brought a lot of attention to her region and, and her music. Uh, when you wrote about Pigeon Forge in your article, America's Country Music Heartland, you said it was lovable kitsch. How did you mean that? I mean, it's, you know, it's not going to win any grand prizes for culture, that's for sure. I mean, there are stores down the main street which are 365-day-a-year uh, Christmas stores, So, I mean, you know, if you're there in June and you want to stock up on ornaments for your Christmas tree, that's the place to head. So I think, you know, if you put your tongue in your cheek and and just accept it for what it is, it's a pleasant little town. I mean, it's... So don't look for a high culture. Look for a fun-loving culture, I suppose. Absolutely, yes. That would be true. What was Dollywood like? Uh, Dollywood was great fun. Dollywood was great fun. I mean, it's a mix of things to do for all the family. And also they had some fantastic roller coaster rides, which is what I was interested in. Now, that's the sort of commercial end of the Appalachian area mm. and Dollywood and everything. But, by the way, I'm speaking with uh, Will Hyde. He's a cover writer from London. He writes for The Times in London, and he's written an article called America's Country Music Heartland. It's so fun to think of an Englishman coming to the United States, going into Appalachia, and just discovering this beautiful part of our culture. I loved reading about the jam session you went to in a, in a grocery store in Floyd. You wrote where yuppie meets hippie meets redneck, and everybody seems to get along. Describe that scene for us. Well, the Friday night uh, jamboree in the Floyd Country Store, I mean, I have never seen anything like it. Music was so ingrained in that region. And I mean, you know, we met a young, I think he was a 16-year-old guy who was making his own violins. It's just, the music is so ingrained, and I love the history of it going back over the generations. And it all seemed to come together in this uh, Friday night jamboree, which was just, I think you paid $5 on the door. Uh, It started off with an hour of gospel and then just the band came on and everyone hit the floor and then it was chucking it down outside. Mm -hmm. It was brewing up a storm and everyone was inside having a great time. Now, would you say this is this is bluegrass? That's a bluegrass jamboree? Predominantly, yes. It's it's mostly bluegrass. And uh, like I said, it starts off with an hour of gospel. Okay, But just a great experience. And I mean, gosh, for, for $5, the best $5 you can spend. Now, I was at Layla's Bluegrass Hillbilly and Country Inn in Nashville. And it, it sounds similar to the jam session you saw at Floyd there, where there's just this love of music and there's this culture where people can swap in and out. One minute, one guy's playing this instrument. Suddenly, somebody walks in the door. Hey, here's uh, some old friend. And he'll grab the violin and... Then guy pulls up a banjo, and everybody's speaking the same language. They're in the same groove. What was the, the energy you felt when you were at a good jamboree? Well, it's pretty much how you described it. I mean, it is just such an amazing outpouring of energy. I mean, I remember another place we went to, which we just pretty much stumbled across, which was in Townsend near Pigeon Forge. 
And someone just said, uh, you know, are you going up to the old time uh, reunion? And we said, well, you know, we probably go along if you say it's worth it. And as we drove up, you could hear, and there were people on the porch just jamming, and we went around the back, and there were people uh, flatfoot dancing, and there were people in little groups playing their musical instruments. Mm. Uh, and we we stayed there. I I thought, oh, I'll just you know pop in for half an hour, and I think we ended up staying all afternoon. It oh, was, that's it was great amazing. travel. Flatfoot dancing—that's kind of like hillbilly tap dancing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that I would have called it tap <laughs> dancing, but I was I was told it was flatfooting. I'll tell you, looking at. A hillbilly band playing, you you look at the violin, the banjo, the string bass, the guitar, the mandolin, and you think how these instruments have evolved over the generations and Absolutely. what an incredible, sophisticated wall of sound it is and filled with energy kind of music form. And it has roots. I mean, it goes back to Celtic roots and African-American roots. What's your understanding of the history that sort of overlaps and pulls together as you explore this area? You mentioned in your article that it's as you walk the Appalachian Trail, it's easy to picture those who walked on that trail before you, their culture, their instruments, how they all blended into this country culture. Well, absolutely. I mean, physically, you can see it. We went to uh, one church near Cades Cove in the, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. When they were building the church, because they cut down the trees and the sap was still quite raw in the trees, when they pushed, uh, all got together and lifted it up to put the, the beams in, the sweat of their hands reacted with the sap and you can still see the handprints in the roof of the church. Now, that kind of thing just blows me away because I love history. I've never really understood people who don't like history, to be honest. But when you can just, you know, when history like that comes alive and you look up and you see handprints, to me, I mean, the, the link between then and now, it's, it's just, uh, I mean, I almost welled up. But then also, as you said, with, with the music, I mean, I don't have a great appreciation. I don't think many English people do of the history there. But when I went to this part of America, you find out, you know, that all these instruments have come from the British Isles. And then, you know, the banjo has African-American influences. And it just all comes together over time. And the historical aspect of this blew me away. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing to be aware of as you're enjoying just a simple jam session that it just didn't pop up yesterday. This is part of an evolution that's uh, deep roots into the culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. London-based travel writer Will Hyde is telling us about his old-time American music discoveries from Nashville to southwest Virginia right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Sally's listening in from Lavelle, Pennsylvania and wants to do some music touring as well. Hey, Sally. Thank you. I'm wondering what town or holler of the Appalachian region gives you the best sense for life and old-time bluegrass today just as it was back then. And if you might share some backroad secret destinations that strike you as most flavorful and authentic. They have this uh, road called the Crooked Trail, which is a, a music trail. I think if you Google it, there's a lot on that. And then head to, uh, there's a small town called Galax, which has a very strong music tradition. And then just a, a wee bit further east, I would definitely say you should end up in Floyd on a Friday night for the jam session. Um, and if I really had to get off the fence, and depending on how much time you had, I would say perhaps just go to Floyd for a, a long weekend and, and definitely enjoy that Friday night jamboree session. By the way, you mentioned the Crooked Road. It's got a wonderful website that you can mm. click and listen to different bluegrass bands playing and so on. I don't think the region's uh, famous for its high cuisine, but I imagine you ate very well when you consider the ambiance and the energy and the music and the people all around you. Let's finish, Will, just with uh, one very memorable meal you had as you were exploring America's country music heartland. 
I love American food. I always put on pounds. I have to say, I think it's a combination of the driving and I have no willpower, excuse the pun on my name. But, you know, if something can be deep fried, then I just say, go ahead, deep fry it. I think one meal that was memorable halfway through the trip, we had been eating a lot of fantastic, but not very healthy food. And we thought, right, we've got to just, you know, stop this and we're going to have a healthy salad. So that's what we ordered which just came with an absolute mountain of cheese on top of it. When we expressed a bit of surprise, this lady just looked at us and she was like, you don't, y'all don't have cheese on your salads back home? <laughs> so um, my attempt to eat healthily Good just luck eating wrong, healthy, all right. Yeah. Well, we could say the same thing about some of our experiences in the pubs of England, I think. it's. Uh, oh, absolutely. Get... The British person talking about good food is <laughs> on, on <laughs> no. thin ice, really. Very nice. Well, it's a beautiful, tasty low ground. I love biscuits and gravy, honestly. I'm also the only English person who likes iced tea. Will Hyde, thank you so much for shining a little light on a slice of our country from uh, your English perspective. Thank you very much. You can read Will's travel articles at willhyde.com and post your own tips for old-time music discoveries in our listener forum at ricksteves.com slash radio. Just ahead, explore the scenic Loire Valley in France by car, boat, or hot air balloon and hear what one American mother wants you to consider about how German families raise their kids. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's home to more than a thousand castles and palaces of all shapes and sizes. Historically, the Loire Valley has been the transition point between the Mediterranean-inspired south of France and the cooler north. A cruise down the Loire River takes you through fertile fields, rolling hills, charming medieval towns, and a backdoor view of more of those impressive chateaus. We're joined now by French tour guides Virginie Moret and Patrick Vidal to help to plan a getaway into the essence of France in the Loire. It's an interview we recorded before the pandemic. Virginie, Patrick, thanks for joining us. Bonjour, Bonjour Rick. So the Loire Valley... It's an important river in France. What does it mean to the French people, the Loire? Well, the, the Loire is, uh, is in some way the definition of the north and the south of France. South of the Loire River, the roofs are going to be made in tiles. They're going to be, be red roofs. And you've got a southern culture, which is more Latin, right. more mm-hmm. relaxed, more manana kind people of culture. People go outside way more yeah. than in the north. And in the north, we are seen as more... You know, we'll, we'll stay behind our doors. We don't open up to strangers, whereas in the south, it's more like Italy and Spain. And it's also when they show the weather forecast, the Loire River is the border between bad weather in the north. And then you just go south of the river and they have Mediter- five more degrees Celsius. It's the Mediterranean. All Almost. Of a yeah. So it's like the cultural divide. I'm fascinated by historically how that just... It's probably no coincidence, but that has been a border. When the Moors came through Spain a thousand years ago and they came into France, they went as far as, as the Loire Valley. When the Nazis pushed down south, wasn't the Loire the, the border? The between... Loire was the border between free France to the south and then occupied France to the north. That's where they would pass Jewish people and that's where the resistance fighter will also go through. And Chenonceau is one of those castles that was very important for the resistance movement. How so? Chenon, so that's the famous castle that sort of arches over the river so gracefully. It's the most visited castle uh, we have of the Loire Valley nowadays, but mm-hmm. it was very important because being over the Cher River, that was the border and they were using it as a passageway. So they could uh, exchange prisoners there information. And, and so on. Mm-hmm. Fascinating to think of the importance of that river. They call it the last wild river in France. It is. It is the, the last one which has no dam on, which is not navigable for big boats. So why are there so many chateaus, palaces on the Loire Valley? But historically, first, the, uh, the, the big importance of the Loire Valley comes from the Hundred Year War. 
Mm -hmm. uh, the period of the Hundred Year War, Charles VII is the is the king of France. He's stuck in Chinon, in the little town of Chinon. Oh, okay. And France has gone to nothing. It's, it's almost disappeared. And uh, so this is when England was controlling half of France. Most of France it's, is actually English. Now that was uh, generally what century would that? Fourteen hundreds. So back in the fourteen hundreds, chateaus were defensive castles. But then, over time, the chateaus became just luxury hunting well, lodges. First of that, Charles VII is stuck in Amboise. France has gone to nothing. Comes on the scene, the lady we know very well, Joan of Arc. Oh, yeah. She comes to him. She gets him out of his chateau. They start to reconquer uh, France. And France redeveloped, starting from the Loire Valley. And this, this area in the Loire Valley always stayed as a soft spot in the memory of the kings. Well, it's also my climate, agriculture, hunting. It's a place that... Hunting is a big thing. So even if they've got their political home in Paris, they really, their heart is well, down vacationing on their political own. Political house stayed in the Loire Valley. You'll have to wait until the 17th century hmm. for the royal power to actually go back to the Ile de France around Paris. Actually, okay. it started with Francis I mm -hmm. after he was, uh, he was jailed. That's right. He was ruling from Amboise. He had Amboise, Blois, and then he built Chambord because he considered that he needed to assert his power That's in the right. world. So these kings would and he move had to... around. And then, obviously, when the king uh, resided there, all of the court had to follow, and they had little chateaus here and there. So it's known as the Thousand Chateau Valley. And then later on, uh, Francis I will build Fontainebleau, so closer to Paris. And then, obviously, all of the court, all of those important people, financer to the king, mm -hmm. will go build castle there. And the th end, these would be the elites who control the economy, who have, who have so money, much money, they don't know what to do with more it. More than the king. They'll build a palace just like the king's down the street from the king, and, and they'll have the elites close together. And the end of the Loire Valley is Versailles. And that comes at the end of the uh, medieval time. So we, uh, we are moving from a period when you got to defend yourself against your neighbor to a period when you are going to defend yourself against another country. So you don't have the local wars anymore. That's to make it simple. Huh? Yeah. So you move from a defensive place to a residence place, to a pleasure place. So now we have these pleasure palaces. We've got gardens. We've got openings on the outside. We've got uh, little rivers we got, running through. And uh, We got all of this because when the Hundred Years were over and the plague is over, what do you do with thousands of men? What How do you do? keep them busy? Well, you have to send them to war somewhere else. And that's when the kings went to war in uh, Italy. And then they brought back ideas of new gardens, so new the, architecture. Because there's a lot of Italian influence in the chateaus of the Loire. Well, the Renaissance, even though we use a French word, uh -huh. the rebirth actually started in Italy. But we use the French word Renaissance. Yeah. And the French king invited Leonardo da Vinci, the classic mm -hmm. Renaissance genius, to spend his last years in, in, the, in the court of the French king on the Loire Valley. We're exploring what you can enjoy in the Loire Valley of France with French tour guides Patrick Vidal and Virginie Moray. Patrick is based in Brittany, a little northwest of the Loire, and Virginie lives near Lyon in the southeast of France. They both specialize in showing American travelers the highlights of their country. Victoria from Norwalk, Connecticut, wants to visit the Loire Valley, and she's on the phone with us now for a little help with her plans. Hey, Victoria. Hi. Um, I'm really excited about getting to go to the Loire Valley this summer because I remember seeing the beautiful, beautiful pictures in the National Geographic when I was a kid, and I always thought it would be so cool to go there. And um, one of the things that I had heard about that I didn't know if you could recommend any particular um, operators to go on a, a short boat trip, um, I know you can rent a houseboat or you can go on an actual river cruise, and that's not what I'm interested in doing, um, nor am I interested in kayaking or canoeing, but I'd just like to ride on a small boat and see some of the chateaus. 
And the problem is, is Loire is the last wild river in France, as we said. So it's not very navigable. There are there are some of them on the Cher River, uh, very close to the Chateau of Chenonceau. You got a little company running some two hours or three hours ride, starting from a, from a yeah. lock and going down and going okay. around Chenonceau. So Victoria, that's the Cher River, like Sunny and Cher. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, the main thing I would think of are the one around Chenonceau and. They are mind-blowing because you start on this little river there and then you get to go underneath the arches of the Chateau of Chenonceau. It's a great little trip. It's it's very short, but it's it's a great experience. It's and I believe right do. at Chenonceau, they rent little rowboats. That yes, you can they, do, they do uh, in the Chateau itself. Talk itself, about yeah. romantic. Hey, Victoria, when you're there, also, there's. did you read about the dogs in, in Cheverny? I did, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to see those dogs. It is one of the They're most so spectacular um, feedings that you'll ever see in your life. Because you have these 70 dogs, and I guess they just eat like once a day. And the master puts all of these T-bone steaks out, and all the dogs are yelping and jumping and vibrating all around, but nobody's eating until the master says, chow time. And then they all dive in. And tourists get to sit there and watch it. And it's a reminder that you've got this wonderful hunting culture, don't you, from the aristocracy. And the chateau is owned by, has been owned by the same family since the building of the chateau in the 1600s. Interesting. Hey, Victoria, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye. Carol's calling from Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Carol, thanks for your call. Okay. Um, I just wanted to comment on a wonderful visit I had at Chambord, uh, courtesy of the Rick Steves guidebook, because I found out that I could stay in a little hotel on the grounds of Chambord because it was listed in the guidebook. And um, it was just magical because you are right there, and after everybody goes home at night, you kind of have the place to yourself, and it has beautiful, um, it's in the forest, and has mm. beautiful canals and wildlife, and you can walk around, and I got up at night, I was there in the fall, and I set my alarm, I got up at 3 a.m. and went down, and the doors were just wide open, and I walked out and looked at the stars. It was um, one of those special times when you are just immersed in the place. And it's you, just you and the beautiful chateau. And it was really one of those special experiences that I'll always remember. And Carol, for the benefit of our other listeners who have not been there, Chambord is the granddaddy of the chateaus with 440 rooms. It looks like this vast sort of church dedicated to the to the king almost. Or, or who was it? Francis uh, first. 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 Mm-hmm. But my experience is always there's so many tourists there. And you stayed in a hotel right on the grounds and you enjoyed it before and after the tourists. What a beautiful exactly. thing. Exactly. It's six times bigger than the average uh, Chateau of the Loire Valley. And that's actually the only built by Francis I, started by Francis I, but Louis XIV, the Sun King, that's the only place he would stay in in the Loire Valley because it's big enough for him. Is that, is that right? I, so you're I'm, lucky. <laughs> imagine the, the investment to build these things, and, and a lot of times they're, they're almost rarely used, but they, they would spend thousands it's, and thousands it's of It's lived in 20 years since it was built in the 1500s. It's been lived in... Completely 20 years. Amazing. That's it. Amazing. And that's the difference in the Loire Valley between the royal castle and just the, the finance or the minister uh, castle, where those were inhabited the whole year. But here the, the court was mobile and the king would just come for the hunting party. Carol, do you have a ballpark uh, memory of how much you spent to stay in the hotel on the grounds there? Oh, you know, I don't remember. That was 2009. But, you know, it actually wasn't very expensive. I don't feel that it was any more expensive and I had a bathroom to myself, and I had a view. I could see the chateau from my room. And it was one of those little kind of oddly shaped rooms. But 
Very charming hotel. I bet it was a building that went back to be one of the service buildings of the chateau. It's probably a couple mm-hmm. hundred years old. And I would bet that, Carol, your hotel there on the grounds of the greatest chateau in France cost no more than a very simple, humble hotel in Paris. I stayed at Chateau de Pré on my last visit. It was just gorgeous. And as a matter of fact, our, our TV show on France, you can watch on our website at any time. If you just go to ricksteves.com and look in the TV section, we have a show dedicating half an hour just to the chateaus that we're talking about right now. Carol, thanks for your call. Thank you. French tour guides Virginie Moray and Patrick Vidal are helping us plan a delightful getaway to the Loire Valley right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And just a reminder, our conversation was recorded before the outbreak of the global pandemic. Emily's on the line from Orange City in Iowa. Hi, Emily. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I um, went to the Law Valley last summer. I'm 14 years old, and it was just really a highlight. It's my favorite travel I've probably ever been. Really? Why is that? Well, I remember we stayed in um, a chateau that was called Chateau de Crimée, and it was really cool because you felt like you were like a princess there because... You had, like, all the grounds, and it was just so cool because you could just roam around and, like, open the doors and just see, like, all the history. So what was your favorite, except for the one you stayed in, was there one of the big, uh, famous chateaus that you liked the best? I really liked the chateau, the Chenisseau, because of its big, like, arches and the river going through. I just found that was really pretty. And that's the one we were talking about. Did you know that at first they just built it on one side of the river and they had a bridge? And then later, the next person that was in charge of uh, renovating decided to turn the bridge into a ballroom, and they built the they extended the chateau actually over the river, and that's why you have that wonderful long hallway with the checkerboard uh, tiles, and you can almost imagine dressing up in a fancy ballroom gown and being there with all the richest people in France. That's so cool. <laughs> we also went to uh, at the Chateau d'Ambois. We went to like a light show. And they had the townspeople, and they would act out everything that happened there. I love it that. It was and, so cool. And that's the chateau where the king decided to invite Leonardo da Vinci to live there in, in his court. Right. And in the Leonardo da Vinci, like his house where he lived, we got to play with, like, all the inventions. And it's really fun for kids because there's lots of places you can run around. And it was like a hands-on science museum. <laughs> so that's in the town of Amboise, A-M-B-O-I-S-E, where you can see a great chateau, a famous sound and light show at, in the evening. And you can go to the house of Leonardo da Vinci and that the basement has all of his models redone. And the whole park is filled with ways that you can check out whirlybirds and Archimedes screws and old um, war implements and so on. Emily, really cool. <laughs> you are a lucky kid to have been over there. Thanks for your call. Thank you. And Diane's on the phone from Independence in Missouri. Diane, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thank you. What's your memory of the Lower Valley? I took a balloon ride over the valley, and it it breathtaking. I'll, I'll remember it all my life. So what town did you leave from? We were staying in Amboise. Mm-hmm. Um, the chateau that we flew over was Chenonceau. Yeah, Chenonceau. Oh, that's the beautiful one that goes over the river. Oh, it was beautiful. And we had seen it earlier that day um, from the ground. So my sister didn't want to go. So I went by myself and joined 13 strangers. um, In a basket high above the lower valley. Far above. And um, at first I was, I don't know that I was scared, but I was... um, had misgivings, had misgivings. I, I didn't speak the language. Pierre was our balloonist, and he wasn't speaking a whole lot of English. But by the time it was over, it didn't matter. 
It didn't matter. Yeah. I remember the lady next to me going, ooh, la, la, ooh, la, la, the whole time. <laughs> and I thought, oh, they really do say ooh, was la, he, la. Was she French? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, when I went on my first balloon ride, I was nervous. But as soon as it left uh, the land, I felt remarkably stable in that balloon. Yes, yes. Not a fear. Not Absolutely a fear. not a fear. Even when they took us up to the, to the, the highest heights, just magical perfectly quiet um we did i remember um scaring the wildlife below as we as we came down very very close to the ground um again what like, kind no, of wildlife absolutely no fear um well the, the farm life but there were deer deer yeah because there, there are a lot deer. of, deer. A lot of deer. deer it's quite expensive um, isn't it diane how much did the balloon ride cost do you remember i think it was around uh, this is five years ago but i think it was um Two or three hundred dollars. Two hundred and fifty. Yeah, my my hunch is two or three hundred dollars for a balloon ride, and uh, yeah, I I my feeling is the best balloon opportunities in in that part of the world would be the Loire Valley in France and Cappadocia in Turkey. Those are the places yes, people just. Yes, and love. we're going to Turkey this summer. All right. Hey, Diane. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for your call, and give us a ring after your Turkey balloon ride. Okay. Thank you, Rick, for all you do. Okay. Happy travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Patrick Vidal and Virginie Moray, and we're talking about the chateaus of the Loire Valley, just two hours south of Paris, and uh, you can stay in a chateau for a reasonable price. You can uh, enjoy a variety of different chateaus. One thing I would remind people, there's so many chateaus to see. Study up and see a variety of chateaus instead of uh, a bunch of uh, medieval fortified chateaus. See a different chateau from each era. If you want to see uh, a garden, be sure you know that there's one chateau that really is famous for gardens. If, if you want to see uh, hunting lore, there would be one that would be good for, for the hunting heritage and so on. And do you have any general tips for people planning their time in the Loire, Virginie? I think they should just um, pick a, a city, for example. Pick Amboise, for example, if you're interested in going to Chenonceau, Chambord, mm-hmm. and uh, Cheverny. And then if you're interested in seeing Villandry, then Chinon. Chinon is close to Villandry and uh, Azelorido, so another region. You don't want to be, as you said, there are lots of castles. And mm-hmm. so just, you know, maximize your time and find a place, for example, like in Amboise, where you can rent a bike and just explore the river. You can, from Amboise, you can bike all the way to Tours just by the river, yeah, have a picnic a somewhere. Idea. We were talking earlier about boating around the Loire, but biking around the Loire is a great idea. And the two towns that you mentioned, Chinon, C-H-I-N-O-N, and Amboise, those to me are the most interesting towns just from an enjoy-the-town point of view. They each have a great castle, and it's a good base for uh, touring from either end of the Loire Valley. Patrick, any other advice in general for the Loire? But the, the idea is that uh, roughly the Loire Valley, the Chateau de Loire Valley, half of them are, are private, half of them are, are public. And a lot of the private ones have been turned into hotels because it's very difficult to run. Uh, the, the idea behind that basically is if you open it to the public, you get subsidies to maintain the place and to, uh, to make it run. If you don't open it to the public uh, for visits, you've got to find another solution because they cost a fortune those places to run. I mean, imagine just when you go to redo the roof of one of those places, it's got cost fortune. So a lot of them, and, and more and more as it goes, are turned into hotels. So the hotels don't get the subsidies, but they make but money, they make by, money renting. By, yeah. by renting. Or you can let proper... it be like a museum. Absolutely. France has such a rich heritage, and <laughs> it's such a delight to explore it. And this is just one little sliver of that great country. This has been Travel with Rick Steves. We've been joined by Patrick Vidal and Virginie Moret talking about the Chateau of the Loire Valley. Merci bien. Merci. Merci, Rick. You'll find a link to Virginie Moray's website with our show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. 
before Sarah Zaski and her husband relocated to Germany, she imagined it would mean a more disciplined environment for raising their kids compared to what they were used to here in the U.S. Her preconceptions were in for a surprise. Sarah reveals what she learned from the German approach to parenting next on Travel with Rick Steves. When I was a kid, traveling with my family in Germany in the 1970s, my parents were a guest at the easygoing, hands-off style of parenting they saw there. Contrast that to the typical anxieties of American parents today, who schedule their kids' activities and then worry about them all the time. Sarah Zaski found more than a few surprises while raising her young children in Berlin. She writes about it in Achtun Baby, an American mom on the German art of raising self-reliant children. Sarah, this must have taken some getting used to. So where did you come from and what took you to Germany? Sure. Uh, we moved to Germany from Oregon, basically because my husband's a scientist and he got a great offer for a short-term position there that actually turned out to be quite longer. And at the time, my daughter was two and a half, and my son was born in Berlin. We stayed in Germany for about six and a half years until we had an opportunity to come back to the States. So just how hands-off is parenting in Germany? Well, I didn't notice it right away when I first moved to Berlin, and I had a lot of stereotypes in my head about what German parents might be like. I thought they would be strict and controlling. Then I went to a playground, and... I saw this child, about eight or nine, dangling from a high structure. And that's the moment where I yelled, Achtung, which means, you know, attention or watch out. And I looked around for his parents, and none of the other adults were concerned. And that's when I started to say, oh, wow, this is really different, because in America, that just wouldn't happen. You know, it's funny to hear you say that story, because I was picturing the uh, strict military father in The Sound of Music when he'd blow the whistle and the kids would all come running down and they'd stand in attention, sort of octoon baby, and you found just the opposite. In fact, there's a word that parents really appreciate in German, isn't there? Selbstständigkeit? Yeah, Selbstständigkeit, which means self-reliance. It's a very strong value in Germany. And, you know, that father from... Uh, the Sound of Music was probably realistic in the 1940s, and, and the German culture has had a huge reaction to that period of time, in including how they raised their kids. And that's somewhat behind the reason for such a strong emphasis on kids having independence and freedom. Germany uh, walks the talk as a society. They pay high taxes, and part of those high taxes is uh, a right for government-funded child care. Is that correct? That's correct. It's different in every region, but in Berlin, now you have at least two years of daycare, preschool, and kindergarten free for every family. So you wrote in your book that uh, three- and four-year-olds in preschool, it's about 90% of the little kids that age are in a preschool, whereas in the United States, it's just 23%. What is it like in Germany? I mean, is that is it just considered the norm? I would think a lot of mothers would think, no, I want to have control of my kids at that age. Well, there's a very positive attitude towards daycare in general. It's seen as something that's good for kids. It's good to be around other children. It's good to learn from other adults. And for me, as an American, that was very refreshing because here I get a lot of messages that, oh, if you put your kid in daycare, that's bad for them. I, I just love the way you described Ozzy's second birthday party where it was like, okay, mom, you can go home now. <laughs> yes, I, I had this idea in my head that I should be there for every big moment in my child's life. And especially birthdays, you think you should be there. You know, later I realized that kids at that age have like six birthday parties every year. <laughs> you know, one at school, one at home, mm -hmm. one with family. 
But when I went to his birthday party at Kita, I wanted to stay a little bit longer and take a picture. And he wasn't even looking to me. You know, he was looking at his cake, at his friends. And I thought, oh, I'm going to take a picture and leave. This isn't a moment that I need to be in. Kita is the, the word for a preschool or something? Kita is uh, kind of like a preschool and kindergarten all rolled into one. And to an American eye, Kita is chaos. And when I walk into Kita, there are kids running around, yelling, you know, playing with toys. They're outside, they're inside. There are no worksheets. There are no lesson plans. It's all about play pretty much all the time. And I think that was a little hard to get used to. But then in kindergarten, which happens to be a German word, they have this notion of a, a democratic kindergarten where it's not chaos anymore, but it's certainly not sit in your class and I will teach you. The children are actually in charge, aren't they? They're directing the learning. Yes, I was told that many times, that kids learn best from each other, and they learn best by playing. And the Kita did have a few rules, but most of the rules were made by the kids themselves. And I had a chance to actually see this in action, where the teacher got up and said, okay, what should be the rules for our Kita classroom? And the kids would offer things very logically. Um, no hitting, you know, no standing on furniture. And the teacher would ask them, okay, why don't we hit? And the kids would come up with, a, it hurts. And the most important motivator for them was the other kids won't play with you anymore. And that is how they learn a lot of social skills. And they make mistakes. But the other kids let them know almost immediately. The kids are roaming the neighborhood, and we really have no idea what they're up to. Our guest, Sarah Zasky, is an American mom who raised two children in Berlin while her family was living and working in Germany. It's where a child advocate suggested to Sarah that the hands-off German style of parenting is based on the idea that controlled kids will become controlling adults. Sarah describes her family's often amusing culture clashes in her book, Aktun Baby. Sarah's also written a novel for young adults called The First, and lately she's been advocating for a free-range kids law in Idaho. Her website is sarahzaske.com, S-A-R-A-Z-A-S-K-E. Sarah, getting back to our democratic kindergarten, I love this idea that kids sit at a round table and they generate their lessons. First of all, they generate their rules, and then they actually generate their ideas for projects. And the teachers then enable them to be productive in their projects. Talk a little more about that. You, you made a beautiful example of how one kid wanted to study the body and uh, traced a full-size body on butcher paper and learned every part. The German Kitas follow what's called situation ansatz, which is like the situation approach, or here in America, I think we call it an observational approach. It means the, the teachers take a step back and they learn what the kids are interested in and they try to follow that. So sometimes they see that a subject comes up with the kids, like when um, the World Cup came up, they automatically made a project about soccer because why fight it? Um, mm -hmm. But they also do it more deliberately where they get the kids around and say, okay, what project should we do next? In the example that you gave, my daughter had wanted to study the human heart, and that was her suggestion. And the other kids were like, oh, just the heart. And then the teacher said, well, how about the body? And then suddenly all the kids were engaged. You know, how do the eyes see? How do the ears hear? And then they talk about what they want to learn and how they're going to find it out. So they go to the library, they go to museums, they invite in a doctor. And the whole process is really quite beautiful because that's how we learn. It's learning how to investigate and to follow your own curiosity. Now, some aspect of parenting that I think we all lose sleep over is keeping the kids just physically safe. 
in Germany, the kids would have much more freedom to run around and be unchaperoned in the playground and, and so on, and, and uh, actually taking on risky play. Uh, take us to the playground in, in Germany, and, and what would you observe? Well, playgrounds in Germany are like nothing I've ever seen. They are so much more imaginative than I've seen in America, even in my childhood. They're usually very tall and have wooden towers with bridges between them that are not steady, like purposely made to shake. There are huge climbing triangles. And the parents let their kids go on these super high, dangerous-looking play structures and they do not follow them and walk around saying, Achtung. Right. <laughs> it's up to the kids to learn how to self-test what they can and they cannot do. So you called this turning off the Achtung. <laughs> yes. It's really hard. <laughs> you know, reading your book, you talked about how our playgrounds have had, from a German point of view anyways, have had the overprotection has, has basically sucked the life out of many American playgrounds. And kids don't even use them as much. Yes, it's really an odd thing to look at, but the statistics of our injuries at our playgrounds that have become safer over the years, supposedly, the injuries are still high, in fact, a little higher than they were in the past. Hmm. And some people theorize that that's because when you're on a place that you think is completely safe, you take more risks than you would on a place where it hmm. looks dangerous and makes you more cautious. And I can see that happening. And also, kids are kind of built to test boundaries. And so if they see some boring structure, they're going to climb to the top of it and jump off. You know, they're going to do something they're not supposed to do. So if you have a playground that's actually designed to appeal to that urge, it can be contained in a better way. So maybe part of the purpose of a playground is to teach a kid how not to get injured. Yes. By giving them the actual risk. Because if you don't have the risk, you're not going to learn. Exactly. That's a hard sell in America, but apparently it's common <laughs> sense in, in, in Germany. We have to accept the fact that our kids are never going to be 100% safe. That's just not how life works. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Zasky. Her book is Achtun Baby, sharing the lessons she learned as an American mom with her two kids growing up in kindergarten and preschool and so on in Berlin, in Germany. And Sarah, I want to get to the topic of being aware of your body and sex. In America, we're so careful and we're so prudish. What takeaway did you have after six years raising kids in Berlin about how do you get kids comfortable with, with their sexuality and, and their bodies? Well, I had a little bit of a shock while I was there and that my daughter was taught the basics of reproduction in first grade uh, by her teacher. And I didn't know that had happened until she started telling me about it. And, you know, I thought, oh, I'm supposed to do that. But wait a minute, somebody's already covered the basics and it made it a lot mm. easier. And as I researched this more, Germans really consider it a fundamental right of everyone to know how your body works and that keeping that information from children is not allowed. So parents there cannot opt out of sexual education. Now, just because they have comprehensive sexual education doesn't mean that the kids are more promiscuous when they become teenagers. And in fact, when you look at the statistics, they're almost exactly the same for Germany and the U.S., but the statistics that are different, and this is what really drove it home for me, is that there are much more dramatically less rates of teen pregnancy, of teen abortion, and of HIV prevalence in Germany than in the U.S. And when I think about what's most important to me for my kids and their safety, I would rather them be healthy than to have them adopt a certain moral stance towards um, sex. 
But in general, Germans are much more open about information and difficult topics than Americans are. So what about things like uh, death and religion and, and facing up with their Nazi past? These are complicated issues for parents anywhere, and I would think in, in Germany, in some cases, particularly complicated. What are some of the experiences you had in, in those areas that you found interesting? Well, I think the most dramatic one is, of course, living in Germany. You cannot avoid talking with your kids about World War II or the Holocaust because mm-hmm. it is simply everywhere. Yeah. You know, and there were, there were a couple moments, you know, when my daughter saw a memorial somewhere and she asked about it. And I kind of said, that's for people who died and kind of left it at that. But then there was another one <laughs> and another one. And they even have Stoppelsteine in the streets, little golden stones mm. with the names of people who were taken away to concentration camps mm. in the days they died. Those are called stumble stones. They're little brass um, memorials in the cobblestones, right? And we see them as adults. We see them as tourists. And I had never thought until just now that that children are very aware of a shiny brass memorial built into the cobblestones. And it gives them an opportunity to ask, what's this? And to kind of force the parents to explain what it is. This is remembering a Jewish child that was taken away and killed. Yes, absolutely. It's a tough thing, uh, and I know that Germany has uh, worked into the curriculum the obligation to teach about their their fascist uh, nightmare and their time with Hitler and the Holocaust, and it's part of the curriculum, especially in high school, and every kid will go to a concentration camp and actually confront their society's dark past. One thing that really struck me in speaking to my German friends about World War II, they all told me that they could never remember a time when they didn't know what had happened. And so what that means is that when they first learned, they were five or six. And I think about how we try to protect our kids from tough subjects. And in reality, our children are, are stronger and more resilient than we know and able, able to handle big topics like that. Sarah, what is the approach to punishment in, in Germany and spanking? What's the take from a German point of view on that? Well, corporal punishment, spanking, is illegal in Germany and has been since 2000. Illegal? Illegal. is against the law to hit children, as it is in in several European countries. Uh The perspective on that is, again, they're very against authoritarianism and perhaps, you know, using your physical power against to try to get a child to do something is perhaps the most authoritarian thing you could do. And so the perspective on punishment goes the same way. They're not very heavy-handed with discipline, and I saw this a lot in Kita. They often would not interfere in kids' fights, and when they did, it was in more of a talking fashion. They would bring a kid to the side and say, well, how do you think the other child feels about that, or what if that was you, and try to talk it through. As one of the Kita principals told me, she said, you can't force a feeling. And I, that really struck home to me. And I think about all the times I try to make my kids say they're sorry. <laughs> hmm. Because when you try to force that, you know it immediately because they say, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, okay, well, Sarah, we've been sounding like an ad for uh, German uh, values in education of young children for the last 15 minutes. Was there anything out of the experience that you just didn't buy and you just thought was absolutely wrong and, and you're glad to get back to the United States for from a parenting point of view? Well, I had some concerns about their education system as it went on, um, especially after fourth grade. They divide into tracks. And if you are on the track to gymnasium, which is like to the university track, you're on the right path. But if you're on those other two tracks, sometimes it's hard to get off. So that would be vocational learning. Vocational. There's a middle route as well. And 
the culture in general kind of starts to harden up after that. It's it's hard to change careers. I mean, one of the most beautiful things I love about America is mm. you always have a second chance here, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can be 40 and change your career. And the same is not true in Germany, at least not yet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Sarah Zasky. Her book is called Achtung Baby, An American Mom and the German Art of Raising Self-Reliant Children. Sarah, let's just finish up this uh, conversation with just a thought on how counterintuitive this is. I mean, America, by definition, is, is freedom and individualism. We celebrate it. And in our parenting, it's kind of the opposite. And when we think about Germany, we think such a regimented society. And I'm not talking just goose-stepping and back in the fascist days. Even today, you just think things work on time and everything is orderly. But in the education, it's kind of flip-flopped. What are your thoughts <laughs> about that? Well, it's interesting what's happened to us in America. We have really clamped down on our kids in the name, for good reasons, in the name of safety and, and fear for their uh, future success. But we've gone overboard where, as parents, we're trying to control the entire environment around a child or we're scheduling them with activities because we want to pad their resume for college. If we take up their entire day like that, we don't leave them any room to make their own choices, to make their own mistakes, or even just to decide for themselves what they want to do. And that in itself is very anti-freedom. <laughs> on Germany's side, it is still a very cultural value to be on time and to do things well. But I started to see that a lot of the substandigkeit, the self-reliance and independence comes with this heavy measure of responsibility and accountability. So in Germany, if you make an appointment with a doctor, they don't call you three times to show up. They just assume you're going to be responsible enough to do it. So that is a freedom, and it's, but it also comes with uh, some accountability. Absolutely fascinating. Sarah, if you could have one piece of wisdom that you picked up that you could splice into the culture of American parenting after your experience in Germany, what would that be? To see our kids as capable versus incapable. If you just switch your perspective on that, then you can see the things that they are able to do or that you can teach them to do as being more possible. And really, for me, I realize that's my primary job as a parent is not to protect my kid 100% and tell them how to succeed in life. It is to give them the skills to do those things on their own, to learn how to manage risk and to chart their own course for success. Sarah Zasky, thank you for writing Octoon Baby, and, and congratulations for taking lessons learned in your travels and bringing them home and sharing them so eloquently. Dankeschön. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Special thanks to Spokane Public Radio and to the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.